are not professing to tell you the complete story of these activities. We are professing to tell you the complete story that we know. These records that we've uncovered don't tell the story. This is CIA files. They tell pieces of it. True stories of U.S. intelligence. Hello and welcome to CIA Files, True Stories of U.S. Intelligence. I am your host, Topher M. Ford, and with me as always is Brandon Givens. Brandon, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. Um, Spent some time in the beautiful city of Almaty, walking around downtown today. Oh, nice. Came across a restaurant with a spaceship on top called Roswell. So what was the food like? Well, it was closed, so I couldn't go inside and, and eat. What? Uh, I was walking around about 3 p.m. on a Sunday, uh, so I'll have to try going back on a Friday. But uh, they had, like, portholes about the, the building, so I kind of wanted to to look in, but I was a little afraid. Yeah, they're trying to hide something. I'm certain that that is a conspiracy to keep you from the truth. Yeah, you'll have to go back so that we can find out the truth about this. Okay, so today we have part two in our series on Antonio Villas Boas, where the story gets maybe weirder. Um, It's hard to say. It's hard to judge these things. What did you think about the first episode, Brandon? Part one was was pretty fascinating, especially when we get into the whole misinformation thing. Yeah. And, I mean, that just makes me think about, like, what's going on now? I mean, they just, you know, we timed this episode uh, because we knew that the Pentagon release was coming. But it's like more and more stuff every day is coming out. And... It's just about, you know, about, you know, extra trek. Well, not unidentified flying objects. They've even got like a new term for it, but it's just fascinating. And I'm just like this, maybe this is all some sort of misinformation campaign, but there there has to be a logical explanation for it. But, but what is it? Okay. Well, without further stalling for time, here is Antonio V.S. Boas, part two. Today we live in a society in which spurious realities are manufactured by the media, by governments, by big corporations, by religious groups, political groups. So I ask in my writing, what is real? Because unceasingly we are bombarded with pseudo-realities, manufactured by very sophisticated people using very sophisticated electronic mechanisms. I do not distrust their motives. I distrust their power. They have a lot of it, and it is an astonishing power. That of creating whole universes. Universes of the mind. I ought to know. I do the same thing. Philip K. Dick A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Of course, so does falling down a flight of stairs. Richard Doty, Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Brazilian farmer Antonio Villas Boas claimed that strange beings visited him one night in 1957, interrupting his farm work to drag him into some sort of aircraft. There, he said, 
After stripping him naked and covering his body with some sort of clear gel, he was introduced to a woman with silver hair on her head and bright red hair everywhere else. Villas-Boas said that he was overcome with lust, after which he had sex with this alien female. Once finished, he said that she indicated that she intended to have his child on her distant homeworld. Although UFO researchers initially dismissed his story as too wild to consider, the tale of the abduction of Antonio Villas-Boas would turn out to set a precedent for a new phenomenon, alien abductions. For years, UFO researchers believed there were two ways to consider this story. An unprecedented encounter with otherworldly beings, or a bit of weird fiction, perhaps dreamed up by a bored young man. But two decades later, a third option was presented by an unusual source. In 1978, UFO researcher Rich Reynolds began receiving phone calls from a man named Bosko Nedeljkovic. Nedeljkovic had worked as a translator for the U.S. State Department, as well as the United States Agency for International Development, also known as USAID. Organized U.S. government relief for foreign nations began in earnest during World War I. There's been a lot of debate about who should manage such aid and what the ultimate goals should be. JFK wanted to increase the United States' soft power. He created the Peace Corps by executive order. He also created a sort of militarized soft power. Training this force was the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School. The center trained and trains special forces, civil affairs, and psychological operations soldiers. The focus is on winning the hearts and minds of the people. Somewhere in between these two efforts, we see the creation of the United States Agency for International Development, USAID. In short, these groups were to make the U.S. the good guys. We could help countries in need and assist them in transitioning to democracy or, well, um, fight their communist insurgencies. And that really becomes the heart of the matter. Should the aid be related to truly helping make the lives of the people, regardless of the government they choose, or should the aid be related to keeping these nations outside of the Soviet or non-democratic bloc? That debate continues. Today, USAID focuses on helping nations struggling with myriad problems. It also has the ability to coordinate with the U.S. military's previously mentioned civil affairs battalions. Interestingly enough, in the 90s, the Office of Transition Services was created within USAID, and this particular office focused focuses on, as the name implies, helping nations transition to democracy.
This office may very well complicate the mission of USAID in general, and even competes with the CIA in shenanigans. For example, they created a Twitter knockoff for Cubans and an attempt to, well, we see how well social media helped fuel Arab Spring and the U.S.'s recent election unrest. Nedeljkovic reached out initially to discuss his ideas for a utopian commune he was working on called Basic Livelihood. It seemed that he was preoccupied with ideas of helping those in less developed countries attain some level of economic prosperity. He echoed these sentiments in a letter released by the CIA that he wrote to CIA Deputy Director Lieutenant General Vernon A. Walters in 1975 asking for assistance with his project. While the CIA declined to help, General Walters did take the time to respond, directing Nedeljkovic to contact the State Department or USAID. Eventually, Nedeljkovic's conversations with Rich Reynolds turned to his work with USAID in the 1950s. He told Rich that he'd been in Brazil working for aid when he was sent to Rio de Janeiro. There, he joined a crew, including three Americans, who boarded a helicopter and flew nighttime missions around the country. Rich wrote, Various apparatus was tested during the flights. The three men from AID had been briefed on their mission, and their function was outlined as auxiliary in nature. The briefing indicated that the men were participating in new forms of psychological testing that would eventually be used in military contexts. After a few nights of this, Nedeljkovic said they flew in a modified helicopter that held an oversized radar scope, medical gear, and had a 3x5-foot chrome-like cubicle attached. Then they flew around that night, scanning the terrain with large sweep lights. The next night, he said they discovered a man with heat-sensing devices and hovered over him. After descending to about 200 feet above him, the crew released what he called a chemical derivative meant to distort the senses and impair motor functions. Nedeljkovic said some of the crew dragged the limp man back to the helicopter where they accidentally dropped him, letting his chin hit one of the rungs of the helicopter. Then Nedeljkovic and his fellow aid workers waited outside of the helicopter cubicle for two hours, after which the other men came back out carrying the man, now unconscious, back to a nearby tractor where they left him on the ground. Once that was done, they flew back to the base and Nedeljkovic returned to his regular job. He claimed that this was not the only instance of abducting unsuspecting people while posing as alien entities from another world. He maintained that the CIA conducted many similar staged alien encounters, both to test drugs and new technology, but to also gauge public reaction to alien abductions. Assuming this is true, Perhaps these experiences left a lasting impression on Nedeljkovic. In addition to his founding the company Basic Livelihood and advocating for economic intervention in poor South American countries, 
Nedeljkovic also wrote a letter to the editor at the New York Times expressing his opinion that space exploration for the purpose of colonizing other worlds was a waste of time and money. In the letter, titled, Don't Expect to Find New Planets to Plunder, he wrote, I cannot help expressing my cynicism at glowing incantations about the glories of space colonization. The idea of a boundless new frontier for humankind to explore and conquer in space is totally specious. The money, the imagination, and the collective energies of our generation will be better spent on educating and disciplining ourselves to manage what is left of the biosphere more wisely, rather than building yet another set of pyramids, which is what this pitiful business of space travel amounts to. Stories told by a man named Orfeo Angelucci show signs that his experiences may also have been mere humans posing as extraterrestrial travelers. Angelucci worked for Lockheed Aviation, building parts for the Starfire jets, the first jet-powered fighter planes ever used by the U.S. military. Angelucci worked for Lockheed Aviation, building parts for the Starfire jets, the first jet-powered fighter planes ever used by the U.S. military. In the same book, Angelucci described meeting a humanoid alien he called Neptune, who issued a warning. Communism, Earth's present fundamental enemy, masks beneath its banner the spearhead of the united forces of evil. Angelucci later described meeting another alien, this one named Adam, who approached him in a diner. Adam offered to turn Angelucci's glass of water into champagne. He did this by dropping a white pellet into the water, where it began to bubble like a tab of Alka-Seltzer. Angelucci described the liquid and its effects on him. I thrilled from head to foot as I took the glass, lifted it to my lips, and swallowed twice from it. At that instant I entered with Adam into a more exalted state, and everything around me took on a different semblance. No longer was I in Tiny's Café in Twenty-Nine Palms. It had been transformed into a cozy retreat on some radiant star system. Though everything remained in its same position, added beauty and meaning were given to the things and people present there. Angelucci's description closely matched the effects of a strong dose of LSD. Some have suggested that Angelucci may have been targeted for drug experimentation because of his position working on top-secret aircraft for the Air Force. He reported being warned multiple times against the dangers of communism by his alien friends. If we take both V.S. Boas and Bosco Nedeljkovic at their word, then the question remains as to who this mysterious woman may have been. That question, however, most likely has a simple answer. She was a prostitute. We've already established that the CIA regularly employed prostitutes through the course of their experiments in Project MKUltra. Honeypots have existed as long as spying. They're even mentioned in the Old Testament. There's the story of Delilah, and Yael was probably a honeypot assassin. George Hunter White and Sidney Gottlieb, as part of their experiments with LSD, conducted Operation Midnight Climax. We all know people let their emotional guards down a bit after sex. They might talk a bit more about things they normally wouldn't. 
Well, they wanted to know if LSD use made someone yet more likely to speak postcoital. So, as the name implies, they used prostitutes to lure men to houses where they were drugged and slept with the women. The couples or groups were observed via two-way mirrors, for scientific purposes only, I'm sure. We also know that during this time, the CIA was experimenting with all manner of mind-altering drugs. MKUltra was in full swing by 1957. The CIA's Office of Technical Service, or OTS, led by scientist Sidney Gottlieb, was testing every narcotic, psychedelic, and hallucinogenic substance it could find at the time. But they were also testing drug delivery systems to discover different methods to deploy and administer these drugs. Civilian scientist and likely CIA execution victim Frank Colson worked exclusively on these delivery methods, specializing in aerosol dispersal. And the OTS wasn't shy about testing these methods in real-world scenarios. CIA employee and psychologist David Rhodes testified to Congress about his experience with Operation Midnight Climax. He and two others intended to test an aerosol delivery method for LSD. They frequented a local bar and developed friendships and invited their friends to a party at the safe house. You know, the one with the two-way mirror and all that. It was so hot that they had to open the windows of the house, and, and the delivery method didn't work as intended. Rhodes goes on to say that his colleague then went with the device into a closed bathroom and dosed himself. He reported that it didn't really work. As part of testimony in the same hearing, CIA agent Philip Goldman said he made um, the delivery devices and had over, they made over 50 such devices and delivered them to George Hunter White, who he said tested them. Drugging citizens in public seems to be the follow-up here. Declassified FBI reports claim an experiment to spray LSD in a New York subway was, scar- uh, was scrapped. However, Dr. Henry Eigelsbach, a former CIA scientist, told investigative reporter H.P. Alvarelli Jr. or Alvarelli that the experiment did occur in 1950, but on a smaller scale than planned. Additionally, George H. White deployed an LSD aerosol in the New York subway again in 1952 and was quite pleased with the results of his own experiment. This is corroborated by White's diary, but CIA records of the event were destroyed in 73. Fun fact, in between these two incidents, in 1951, there was a case of mass hallucinations in Pont-d'Esprit, France. But wait, there's more. Not to be outdone, the U.S. Navy experimented with biological delivery systems. In 1950, they conducted Operation Ocean Spray, in which the U.S. Navy sprayed a bacteria 
over the San Francisco Bay Area. The bacteria was believed to be harmless. And the point appears to be to go back and measure how far the bacteria traveled. However, 11 people came down with rare urinary tract infections and one died. The U.S. government was comfortable conducting secret tests on unwitting subjects in foreign countries as well. Venereal disease is very expensive for a society, and especially the military. I mean, syphilis can take out enough soldiers that uh, uh, can man an entire division or more. So the U.S. government had a very real interest in treating and preventing venereal disease. Starting in 1946, the U.S., via the United States Public Health Service and the National Institutes of Health, paid for medical experiments conducted on prisoners, prostitutes, and mental health patients in Guatemala. The short version is they infected people with syphilis and gonorrhea in a variety of ways, from having syphilitic prostitutes have sex with prisoners to directly injecting people. Then they tested various treatments, comparing treatment results to infection methods, as well as monitored their control groups, which received no treatment, to see how the disease progressed. These experiments ended in 1948. This was happening concurrently with the Tuskegee syphilis study in which black people, some with syphilis, latent or active, were offered free treatment to participate in their study. However, many were used as the, the control to see what would happen if not given medical care. These experiments didn't end until 1972, despite penicillin being a well-established and available treatment by 1948. While all of this lends credibility to the combined stories of V.S. Boas and Nedeljkovic, there remains the overwhelming possibility that none of this actually happened. Perhaps V.S. Boas had, like many Brazilians at the time, read the stories of UFO encounters so prevalent in the newspapers at the time. Perhaps he concocted the story as a way to pass the time while driving his family's tractor in the dark. Professor and writer Peter Rogerson suspected that prejudice helped UFO researchers to accept V.S. Boas's story without questioning it. One reason why the AVB story gained credibility was the racist assumption that any farmer in the Brazilian interior had to be an illiterate peasant who couldn't make this up. As Eddie Bullard pointed out to me, the fact that the Vilas Boas family possessed a tractor put them well above the peasant class. In fact, AVB fits well into the classic abductee pattern of the highly intelligent artistic individual in a status inconsistent occupation. We now know that AVB was a determinedly upwardly mobile young man, studying a correspondence course and eventually becoming a lawyer, at which news the ufologist who had considered him too much the rural simpleton to have made the story up now argued that he was too respectable and bourgeois to have done so. Rogerson himself believed that V.S. Boas was simply looking to make a little money by selling his story to a newspaper. Reading between the lines of the Fontas account, it seems pretty clear that AVB was hoping to sell the story to O. Crisario, and was disappointed when they refused to buy it, and perhaps was taken off guard when he started to be interrogated. As for Nedeljkovic, 
He made his claims while attempting to generate interest in his plans for a new utopian community. Perhaps he hoped to draw more attention to himself and his plans by attaching himself to a fantastic story. We will likely never know the truth behind the story of the young Brazilian farmer and the one-time government employee, but the details do form an intriguing, if not foggy, picture. One of fantastic, if not dark, possibilities. Wow. Um, yeah, so that's interesting. It's a crazy story. Um, I want to, you know, point out because on the show, we don't want to get into the over the top, unverifiable conspiracy theories too much. At the same time, some of these are just too interesting to ignore. But my feeling on it is ultimately you have two ways of looking at this story. You can look at it as if everyone involved is lying, which is the easier path and maybe the most likely. Or you can take them at their word and then go through the story assuming that at least the foundation of it is true, which maybe is unlikely, but it's definitely more interesting that way. Um, But yeah, so thanks for listening. And we will be back in a week with more headlines and more stories. Thanks, guys.